Don't believe the hype. Read the type. This is Type Beast. Take a look. It's in a book. It's Type Beast, baby. You're such a good singer, bro. Huh? No. You're going on uh, no, The Voice? <laughs> I hate that show, man. Oh, my wife loves The Voice. Really? Oh, it's man. like a, well, my mom, it's my a, mom likes it too. It's a competition that's like, you know, the hosts or the whatever the the, you know, the judges are also competing against each other. So I think that's why Jenna likes it because it's a little bit more, like it's, I don't know. I would say it's a little, at least from what I've seen, I liked it better than uh, what's that other one, uh, the one that was famous for a long years. I think it's back still. The that the the singing competition that's been around forever. Anyways, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but uh so what uh what are you bringing the audience this week with good old type beast okay so uh, this book was recommended by a listener and he kept he kept pushing me he's like yo you need to cover this book you need to cover this book you need to cover this book and then during the break i was listening to a podcast with rick rubin uh, which is the Jewish guy who started Def Jam. And he was interviewing um, Andre Benjamin, Andre 3000 of Outcast, And, you know, Andre referenced to this book, and he was like, oh, man, this book is so amazing. It was very helpful. And I was like, oh, shoot, I better go cover it. If, if Andre 3000 is <laughs> reading it, um, then I guess I got to I gotta take a look at it. So, so we'll be looking at the book Outliers, The Story of Success. By Malcolm Gladwell, and so this one was a, num- a national bestseller. And so, so, just by, I was just going to ask you a quick question. Just by looking at the table of contents, you know, there's a Bible verse referenced as as part of, you know, one of the chapters. Um, you know, trouble with geniuses, uh, ethnic theory of plane crashes. So, you know, to kind of give the book a category, like to some extent, I'm like, oh, is it biblical? Or, you know, but then some of the other stuff is like, doesn't look like it's biblical. So how would you kind of classify this book um, if you were trying to put it in a genre? Oh, well, a genre. Uh, I would definitely say it's 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 definitely part narrative or majority narrative. Because even like when I first get the books, you know, I always want to look at the table of contents to get a feel for it. And I was totally lost <laughs> when, I, when I read the table of context, I, I was like, "What?" I was like, "What is this?" I, like, I can't, I can't, I can't trace the flow of thought, and the reason why. Yeah, your your how to read a book application kind of failed you. Yeah, because the way that the structure is laid out. In yeah, the table yeah, contents. yeah. Um, it threw me off, but generally, um, he's just he's telling stories, mm-hmm. right? Um, stories of success. So, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, he's a Canadian journalist and writer best known for his unique perspective on popular culture. So he writes for The New Yorker, and he's been doing that since 96. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so so basically, well, I think we should first answer, well, okay, what is an outlier? So an outlier mm-hmm. is a scientific term to describe things or phenomena that lie outside normal experience. And now what is the book about? 
So, so I, I want to, can I, I jump in for a second? It's so funny you, you went on that. Oh, define an outlier. Because for me, I was like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I didn't even think that, that there was a need to do that. But that's because I'm looking at it statistically. Um, and so from a statistical perspective, outliers are generally things that you, when you look at the data, the data point is kind of outside of where all the other data is sitting. Right. So it's like you look at uh, the averages of a class, the grades, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, some one kit. Like a good example would be like every test someone's getting 60, 60, 60, 60. And then a guy gets 99 on one test. That 99 is considered the outlier because it's just, you know, it doesn't fit. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just thought, you know, the statistical approach might might help uh, for some of our audience. Okay, so the book, so Outliers is, what the book is about, everything we have learned in Outliers says that success follows a predictable course. It is not the brightest who succeed. If it were, Chris Langdon, Lang, Langlin, a guy who, who I'm going to talk about later, uh, would be up, up there with Einstein. Nor is success simply the sum of the decisions and efforts we make on our own. It is rather a gift. Outliers are those who have been given opportunities and who have had the strength and presence of mind to seize them. And so he goes through uh, numerous stories of people who have been successful. Now, I'll say this out from the jump, um, the where I disagree with the book, and where I would push back on the book. I think that the title could be a bit misleading because it's it's called Outliers and the tagline is the story of success. But I would say it's the story of those who are really successful or really, really successful, super successful. Uh, because the the stories he, he, he gives are great illustrations of how it isn't just a person's will that gets them to the top, but numerous factors that contribute to a person's success. And a lot of times is... It, it can lead to somebody becoming very fatalistic, meaning um, they think because things are already predetermined or things have to fall a certain way, they're not going to try it, and they become pessimistic. So there's, so that you can kind of take away pessimism from it if you were reading it from the wrong lens. And so, again, um, I just thought it was just kind of misleading in saying, okay, well, this is a story of success in general, when actually this is more of a story about success Um in, in random circumstances, uh, not yeah, not yeah. random, not random. No, unique. I think is the right word. I think that's that's a better word. Yeah, in in, in in unique ways. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the stories that he mentions is, or or I should say, um, five things that stuck out to me from the book on how to be really, really successful. I'm not gonna say normal success, but really, really successful. So you have luck, when and where you were born, and then you have the 10,000 hours principle, um, and basically the, the, the 10,000 hours is you taking 10,000 hours for, for you to become a professional. And then there's also the Hamburg um, opportunities, and had the Hamburg opportunities was an example, was a story where he talked about the Beatles and how the Beatles... Um, had this unique 
opportunity to work on their um, their playing and their sets for in a unique situation that helped that helped them basically become professionals without even um, yeah without yeah basically helped them to become uh, professionals and then there's the cultural legacies basically legacies matter and then there's a hard work principle so all five of those things um, when all those things align um, usually leads to people being very very successful mm. yeah so i mean based on what you've said so far i can see what you mean by unique scenarios because you know they're they're the story of random success like random meaning like the person's whose story that he's telling um it's not actually necessarily a uh let's say the protocol or the way that you you as an individual become successful it's really just you know a bunch of stories of peculiarity and uniqueness for these individuals that became successful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so, yeah, yeah, I can kind of see why you're, you you framed the original thing about if you take the wrong perspective um, when reading the book, you can become pessimistic. Yes, most definitely. So, for example, there was one story about this guy named Chris Langland. And basically, he, he has a very high IQ. So, the average high IQ of a person is 100. And Albert Einstein, his is 150. Well, Chris Langland, his is 195. Wow. <laughs> right? Um, um, he was talking at six months. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So okay. this is a, a very smart individual. So basically, the way how the story goes is he you would assume because a, a person that's smart would basically be able to go anywhere and do anything they want in the world and be successful. But in comparison, his IQ in comparison to where he is now, um, he's pretty much would con- be considered a failure. And so there, there's a counterpart he has, uh, a guy named Robert Oppenheimer. And he has a, he, he has, um, he has a high IQ as well. And he went further Chris Langland and what's what's unique about the Robert Oppenheimer uh, story is that uh, he's a genius uh, he, he he's done great things but he also like tried killing his professor right and so wow. when he when he got caught trying to kill his professor um, he was able to talk his way out of the situation now, <laughs> compared to Chris Langan, basically, because he grew up without the support system to nurture his IQ, um, yeah, he, he just kept missing opportunities for him to, to climb the academic, la- ac- academic la- ladder. So, for example, there was one instance where um, his mom um, didn't fill out or sign um, up this document for him to go to school she just never got around to it so he didn't get to school and then when he was short on his um short on his tuition uh, they basically kicked him out and he never you know 
took the opportunity to go and plead for uh, the opportunity to, to get back into school. He kind of just blew it off and, you know, was like, okay, well, the hierarchy doesn't believe in me, so I'm not even going to try. Um, and so, but then mm-hmm. you have Robert, Rob, Robert Oppenheimer who had uh, a support system around him. And so he learned practical intelligence. Uh, and, and this was the skill on learning how to basically talk your way through things and feel your way through situations, kind of like emotional IQ. And so the principle that Malcolm Gladwell was getting at was that, you know, just because you're smart doesn't mean you are going places. You still need that support system around you. And uh, one of the things I took away from this story was that he pointed out that, you know, yeah, again, it's not about having a, a being really smart. It's about being smart enough because he was showing a test where um, they were, you know, basically follow doing a test study of people who were smart and following them throughout their lives. And the people with the highest IQ didn't necessarily end up in the best places. But the people who are smart enough and took advantage of their opportunities went the furthest. So, yeah, it's not about being smart, but being smart enough. Yeah. And, you know, I think I can jump in here just to talk about IQ for a second. You know, some of the things I've learned, and I think this will resonate Maybe not, but I think it'll resonate with what you what the books talks about. You know, a high IQ um, will will give you an indication at how quickly somebody can learn something, but it doesn't tell you how. It doesn't really give you an indication of whether or not they'll be good at that thing, right? So if you, I'm I'm using it more in terms of a job, mm-hmm. right? So if taking a high IQ person and putting them into any task, they'll learn those tasks relatively quickly. But you have to look at their character to determine whether or not that that job actually fits for them, right? Because maybe the high IQ will also lead them to be very distracted and bored such that they're not actually going to be good at that job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's where, you know, what you said about circumstances plays a huge role because, you know, IQ is like one piece of the puzzle, right? If you have a high IQ person with a high emotional intelligence, that's going to be a much more valuable asset, uh, let's say, at a management level of an indus- of an organization, as opposed to a, you know, recluse person who's high IQ. They're probably going to be better in more of like a self-isolated context. You know, whether maybe that's a a, a researcher, uh, you know, or an Einstein sort of scenario where they're just learning and developing, and you know, so I just play that, bring that up to to kind of you know what I know about IQ. And sort of, um, it kind of, I think, plays into these two scenarios of like really high intelligence people, not necessarily leading to success. Um, so, I don't know. Does that does that kind of resonate with it a bit, or do you think I'm kind of off base? No, 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 no. You, you hit the nail on the head. And so he continues to develop these stories, and he has this one unique story about uh, the Jewish people. And how when they first came to America, how they were successful, how they became, they, they climbed the, cro- the corporate ladder in regards to being lawyers. And also um, early on when they first came to America, dominating the garment industry. And so what's unique is that, you know, despite being the minority, the Jews, because they had, because of their culture, um, they developed a privilege for themselves. So I'll just read a a piece from the book, and it says, 
to come to New York City in the 1890s with a background in dressmaking or sewing or Schitzwarren handlung was a stroke of extraordinary good fortune. It was like showing up in Silicon Valley in 1986 with 10,000 hours of computer programming already under your belt. There is no doubt that those Jewish immigrants arrived at the perfect time with the perfect skills, says sociologist Steven Steinberg. Hmm. And so the that chapter is broken down to like three lessons that you could that um, that the Jews had. Um, the three lessons that 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 led to the Jews having success in America. So one was the importance of being Jewish. And then the second was the demographic luck and then the garment industry and the meaning and finding meaningful work. And so mm-hmm. he was just basically like reassessing their climb from, you know, immigrants who had nothing to um, people who are known for not the Old Testament, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but but having uh, money. And that's something, you know, I know a lot of times um, black people will say make comments like, oh, you know, look what the Jews do. Mm hmm. In in what regard, um, in terms of the like what you're talking about, their story from nothing to something, or in a different regard? No, um, yeah, just just from nothing to something, mm-hmm. and just and just how they're known for uh, being savvy and right, being known for doing well financially. True. Yeah. So I I I, I thought I thought it was uh, pretty inspiring as I was reading it and just them finding the right opportunity um well not even just them finding the right opportunity but you know uh divine providence god's sovereignty plus man's free will working together to bring about these things so a lot of times again like what malcolm gladwell argues is sometimes these things aren't even a part of has to do with the person right it has Mm. to has Mm -hmm. to do uh with the situation that they were um born into when you're talking about, you know, product of, or, or sorry, like a, the luck kind of scenario or, you know, um, kind of, you know, for these success stories, kind of things just all of a sudden happening almost. It's it's resonating with, have you, I'm sure you've heard this statement. It's like, it took me 10 years to become an overnight success. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 and it takes time. And so now, for example, like with the Beatles, they were the reason why they became so successful was because they had an opportunity to cultivate their skills in Hamburg. And so here's a piece from the book, and it says, All told, so basically this is their time spent in Hamburg and perfecting their skills. All told, they performed for 270 nights in just over a year and a half. By the time they had their first burst of success in 1964, in fact, they had performed live an estimated 1,200 times. Do you know how extraordinary that, extraordinary that is? Most bands today don't perform 1,200 times in their entire careers. The Hamburg Crucible is one of the things that set the Beatles apart. They were no, they were no good on stage when they went... Sorry. They were no good on stage when they went there and they were very good when they came back. Norman went on, 
they learned not only stamina, they had to learn an enormous amount of numbers, cover versions of everything you can think of, not just rock and roll, a bit of jazz too. They weren't disciplined on stage at all before that. But when they came back, they sounded like no one else. It was the making of them. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, a, I don't want to say a perfect example of becoming an overnight success, but but that you talked about it before, 10,000 hours to become, a, you know, an, an expert in your field. Um, and so, you know, to some extent, I think, you know, the question I have for you is, you know, for people who are successful, like the, you know, for, for all of these stories, are you able to pull things out and say, okay, here's some things that, that is common amongst successful people. Um, and I think, you know, the 10,000 hour rule is probably one that you, you would say like that going back to what I said, oh, it took 10 years to become an overnight success. Like in general, you don't just, you know, unless you're winning the lottery in essence, you know, becoming successful, there are certain things that you will see amongst successful people. And I think one of them is, is effort. Oh, well, yes, effort. Yeah, effort. Yeah, but disagree. but I, I would say yeah, effort's a small part of it. I think the one thing that stuck out to me was 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 the Hamburg situation, and I thought to myself, and it made me ask, and it it maybe it would make the listeners think and ask themselves, you know, where was your Hamburg opportunity, where someone provided you a chance to get better at your skill, uh, whatever it is you love to do, and finding that opportunity to get better. So I thought about the ha a Hamburg opportunity for everybody would be um, quarantine, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's a unique situation where everybody has downtime to uh, go online. Not everybody, bro. Um, I not don't. everybody. I've been, I've not, I, um, I'm not everybody. more busy than I've ever been. But, yeah, well, right. Um, yeah, some of, some of my pastor friends, um, yeah, it, 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 it technically it doesn't stop, but, but Granted, you have the opportunities to go online and, and do a couple courses and perfect your skills. Uh, you have that downtime. So using that downtime to perfect it. And mm -hmm. basically he was saying, okay, and the world will reward you for um, being really good at your skill. And this is how uh, Bill Gates uh, rose to the top as well. And I, and I thought that was a really good story And looking at Bill Gates because we look at Bill Gates and we're really impressed with how how smart he is and how much he's done and how rich he is. But there was a ton of unique situations where only because, only because of, I would say God's providence, was he able to um, become who he is today. So for example, so here are the unique situations that had to happen for, or the unique situations that help make, Bill Gates, who he is today. And so it says here, opportunity number one was that Gates got sent to Lakeside. How many high schools in the world had access to a time-sharing terminal in 1968? Opportunity number two was that the mothers of Lakeside had enough money to pay for the school's computer fees. Number three was that one number three was that when that money ran out, one of the parents happened to work at C cubed, which happened to need someone to check its code on the weekends and which also happened not to care 
if weekends turned into weeknights. Number four was that Gates just happened to find out about ISI. And ISI is just happened to need someone to work on its payroll software. Number five. Number five was that Gates happened to live within walking distance of the University of Washington. And that's where he would go and practice um, his coding. And then number six was that the university happened to have free computer time between three and six in the morning. Number seven was that TRW happened to call Bud Permbach. Number eight was that the best programmers Permbach knew for that particular pro- problem happened to be two high school kids. And number nine <laughs> was that Lakeside was willing to let those kids spend their spring term miles away writing code. And what did virtual and what did virtually all of those opportunities have in common? They give they gave Bill Gates extra time to practice. By the time Gates dropped out of Harvard after his sophomore year to try his hand at his own software company, he'd been programming practically nonstop for seven consecutive years. He was way past ten thousand hours. And I think you, you that story is a is a great example of kind of what you said about COVID and and you know people taking advantage of the opportunity because how many people took advantage of COVID to catch up on their TV shows <laughs> right uh, to binge watch <laughs> um, you know not to say that you don't take it we you know everybody needs to take advantage of rest as well right like you know if you don't get your R&R, you're probably not going to be as productive. But, you know, foregoing excess leisure can produce fruit in the long run. Well, okay, but see, this is where, well, I can argue back based on the book that R&R may not be helpful. And so it was making an Well, that's why I said excess, but yes. Sorry, say what you're saying? I I, I said, that's why I said excess R&R. Right. Like the question is not that you don't need any R&R, but that sacrificing excess R&R is, is kind of what I'm getting at mm-hmm. that. Like, okay. so with yeah, COVID, yeah, no, that's fine. No, 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 that's fine. Because so in chapter eight, he talks about uh, rice patties and math tests and basically talking about why Asians are so good at math. So the previous chapter, he was talking about, you know, why Jews are um, did so well for themselves in America. And now he was talking about. Now he's talking about why Asians are doing, why, why Asians do so well in math. And so he says, virtually every success story we've seen in this book so far involves someone or some group working harder than their peers. Bill Gates was addicted to his computer as a child. So was Bill Joy. The Beatles put in thousands of hours of practice in Hamburg. Joe Flom ground, sorry, Joe Flom ground away for years perfecting the art of takeovers before he got his chance working really hard is what successful people do the genius of the culture formed in the rice paddies which is the rice fields is that hard work gave those in the fields a way to find meaning in the midst of great uncertainty and poverty that lesson has served asians well in many endeavors but rarely so perfectly as in the case of mathematics. 
And so basically he argues that because of the rice fields that um, is the hardest type of farm work to do and because, you know, Asian culture, um, the agriculture of, of Asia forces you to, well, the best type of agriculture to eat is rice. And so they've perfected making rice, but it's a very hard system to do. But they perfected it and they developed a work ethic because of it. Um, and that's kind of flew that flows into their um, ability to do math well. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think uh, definitely from everything you've said, you know, work ethic and, and effort and, and intentionality of learning and, and, you know, that, that, I mean, to some extent you create your own success, right? Opportunities have to come your way, you know, some, you know, luck, not that we necessarily believe in luck, but, but that idea of like circumstances have to come together, but if you're not prepared, those opportunities don't matter. Yeah. Well, essentially he was arguing for cultures matter. And because of the difficulty of Chinese culture at the time, um, they developed a real grit grind mentality. And so it helped them um, when it came to math. And so what's interesting is that he doesn't just leave it at Asians. Cause you know, you'll say, okay, well, what about, um, these people or that people. Um, but then he shows how the culture um, was basically imitated in the KIPP charter schools in New York. And so they took that um, hard-nosed Asian culture and adapted it to a new, uh, Bronx school system for underprivileged kids. And they showed how the KIPP charter schools, the KI, it's K-I-P-P, the KIPP ch uh, charter schools basically produce the best students. And basic, and so to get into the school, it's by lottery. It isn't necessarily by having a lot of money, but, you know, everybody's free to come, but it's by the luck of the draw. And for the kids that go there, they're basically uh, put through a, syst a rigorous school system that has them at school from 7.30 and has them um, finishing school around three. And basically it goes back to taking away the leisure of uh, um, uh, spring break or, or sorry, not spring break, summer holiday. Um, so, you know, that's like, that's a sacred time in, in the West when, you know, kids are out for the summer. But, Malcolm Gladwell was showing how how the summer break was killing kids academically, <laughs> and so and so the people That's, who started huh? It's such a funny it's such a funny sort of um, comment because I've heard sort of the complete opposite, and and that being so, I guess the question becomes like. It might kill them academically in ten, in the sense of scores. Is that would you say that that's pro like test scores and, and 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 that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, yeah, he was showing like test scores and and how um you know f you know for the Asian community you know the kids don't take breaks and it's not because yeah. the parents are being hard, but it's because 
you know, the parents come from a hard place. Mm-hmm. Right? Because sometimes, you know, I thought it was just them being hard for the sake of being hard. But, you know, the parents come from a hard place and they pass that culture down. So the parents don't take breaks. Kids don't take breaks. Uh, and so that's why the kids um, have have less opportunity to forget what they remember in the summer. And, I, you know, just reading that made me laugh because I remember, you know, my summer breaks um, were where basically I didn't I didn't read, I didn't write, I didn't do any schoolwork in the in the summer break. So when I went back to school in September, um, I could barely write my name. Hmm. See, the reason I thought it was I jumped in and kind of thought it, I don't want to say it was funny, but it's a bit I- ironic because I've heard people kind of refer to um the remember I was talking about the idea of learning. Uh, I, I mean, I've talked about it a number of times in our conversations, but the idea that the summer is the only time kids will learn sort of on their in, in a self-directed manner. And that might be as simple as like building a fort, right? So learning sort of how, you know, you're trying to, you know, whatever, build a, a, a you know, branches into a fort in the middle of the woods and just kind of seeing how different things go together and sort of let's call it the practical side of physics um, or you know you're building a skateboard ramp and and realizing you know that the wood just fell over the first time you tried to ride up it because you sucked at building it right and so I'm just saying like you know the person that I'm thinking of or the quote that I'm thinking of was like this idea like summer is the only time that the kids will adventure and sort of learn in a natural course, which I I think this person would argue, and I would actually argue to some extent, um, when we enter the workforce, you know, how much of the learning is self-directed as a result of you encountering a problem and you're trying to, okay, what's the best way to solve this? And do I have to start Googling something and then read someone's write-up on that, you know, activity? Yeah. No, 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 totally. I, I, I totally... It's just a different... That's why I, I, I focused on the test scores. Yeah. Because to some extent, he's... I would argue the test scores is only one metric of learning. But, yeah, but, but again, I, I guess, you know, yeah, I see what you're saying, but I guess I agree with the no, with cutting down the breaks. So from an, an athletic perspective, um, when you're in your off season, and I remember I had to, I had to explain this to a parent, you know, because it was, you know, summer was out, school was out, and that's the summer break. And so she thought summer break was a time for rest to rest. And I was just like, actually, no, that's no, that the summer is the time where you do all your work. I mean, you rest for as long as you need to is for your body to recover. And then after that, you know, you're you're, you're back to the grind and mm-hmm. trying to achieve and, and, and trying to get better at what you're doing. So at that point, I was yeah. kind of like, OK, I, 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 I see that. And, and the results from the KIPP school was, was so inspiring to see these kids working and they they compared it to um somebody trying to make partner oh okay yeah that, that's how hard the kid the kids were working and um and there was a girl who little girl she had her journal and she basically you know journaled for Malcolm Gladwell her day and how it went and how mm. she um you know had to get up in the morning and you know take an hour and a half train ride to work to to school and then she, you know, she fell asleep in class, but then she had to, you know, wake up and, and fix herself up because she knew she had to get her information down. And and was, and basically the kids basically sign a contract, the kids, the parents and the kids sign a contract to say, OK, look, if you're coming here, um, 
you got to abide by these rules, um, line up, sit up straight, all these etiquette things um, that go a long way. So um, adapting and again, adapting the culture. So it's not just saying, okay, well, we can't be, you know, this ethnic group can't be good at math because they're not from there. Well, no, these, these things can be adapted. And so, yeah, I, I thought that was very practical, you know, just looking at the hard work and adapting um, and taking from other cultures. Now, the points where I disagreed with the book, um, there were points where he would kind of say, um, okay, well, if this situation was like that, or he would try to, uh, as Thomas Sowell would say, um, practice cosmic justice and trying to uh, recreate the balances to create um, to compensate for the um, inequalities to level the playing field um, for people who didn't um, have the same opportunities. And so he would say, okay, well, if, um, for example, um, the hockey example and the soccer example about kids born closer to the registration date um, mm. and the kids uh, born further away from the registration date. And it also works for school as well. Um, and I'm sure some people have heard that argument as well. Um, depending on where your kid was born um, and based on the registration date will impact how well they do. And so he was just basically saying, and it's just like this in basketball as well, that you know, making a certain team can mean everything because if you make the elite program or the elite team, that means you get special attention, you get more practice time, uh, better trainers, better trainers, and so forth. So a lot of times, as you know, depending on where you're born, you miss that opportunity. So he made the argument that like all the best, most of the majority, forty percent of the best players on the Canadian national team or whatever team it was, um, the people were born from January, like, February, and March, closer to the registration date, which was January first. Which would make them older or the oldest amongst their peers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they'd be more developed, bigger. And and, and then, yeah, he made that argument which for gave school. Them, which Advantages. arbitrarily gave them an advantage because um, they would have either, you know, further brain development, further body development. Mm -hmm. again, more time know, on everything the ice. Else being, with yeah. everything else being constant. Yeah, and, so, the, and yeah. so his argument was saying, okay, well, why don't we try to put kids... And this is not just hockey, but in academically, academically as well, um, create leagues to that cater to where the person was born. So you would be playing in a particular group. So instead of, you know, breaking it down for the twelve months, you would probably break it down um, six month increments. Yeah, or something. yeah. So so there'll be one league for the kids born from January to June, and then one from uh, you know July to December. Right. And yeah, then, yeah. but now he, now he said, of course, this would mean, um, <laughs> a lot more paperwork. Um, but you, this would give people more of a fair chance. And, and he was suggesting this academically as well. Um, and this would give people more of a fair opportunity. Um, so I, I thought, I thought that was very fascinating, but, um, I, I, again, I just kind of was like, well, that isn't really efficient in in the way um he, he was suggesting it but it was just one of those things he kept saying if if this uh and try to create um something that was fair and it kind of cut against his argument mm -hmm. because he was pointing out that yeah like 
life is not fair. Like all these unique situations have to happen to produce who you are. Um, sometimes it's um, the opportunities and sometimes it's when you were born. And he was kind of saying like, yeah, some people can't help when they were born. And so one of the points I was kind of pushing back on as if I was talking to him was that, you know, for the kid who was born on the wrong date and he's not as developed and he doesn't make this particular team. Um, and so he misses out on the opportunity, the practice hours to get better. I mean, there's still an, there's still an opportunity for the kid to come back and be able to make that team if he has the right people around him, if he has like an uncle or a dad or a mom who, who knows the system and is like, okay, well, you didn't make the team this year. Well, yeah, clearly because, you know, you got a lot of work to do. And if the parent or the guardian is able to help that person get back on track, um, they could still make it. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying, if I'm trying to generalize it, is that, you know, one, not one of these factors um, can make or break you. But multiple, like missing one, but having three of others, right? So um, to your point, you said 40% are within the first three months of the year. Well, the other 60% clearly didn't have that individual advantage or opportunity, mm-hmm. but other things obviously had to play a role for them to be able to achieve success, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of professional athletes. Yeah. Right. So to your point, good support system, you know, maybe, you know, let's use wealth as a simple example. They're born into a wealthier family. So the parents could pay for better coaches, even if they didn't make that better team because of their age, you know, advantage mm-hmm. or, or, you know, whatever it is. Right. So the point being that like you, it, what it want, and this is where I think you're the original point you made about like, if you don't, if you're careful with your mindset, don't start going, well, I don't have that or I don't have that. So therefore I'm going to fail. Right. right. So it's easy to become pessimistic because you're focusing on the, the components you don't have as opposed to identifying, okay, here are the good things that I have and how do I maybe add to those good things to in- increase my opportunities, to increase my skills so that when I have opportunities, I will achieve, achieve success. Um, right. Right. And and that's why, you know, when I was just looking at it, I was like, oh, this is this is very fascinating. And, and I and I, I I thought the book was really well done. And then, like you mentioned, the Matthew, the Matthew verse and mm. Matthew twenty five twenty nine, And it says this is in chapter one. And he says the opening and says for unto everyone that hath shall be given and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away, even though which he hath. Matthew twenty five twenty nine, and it's basically a passage about stewardship, um, mm. and 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 taking care of what you have, and that you know the Lord, you know, can multiply what you have, um, but you got to be a good steward steward with it. And so it it, it was helpful. It was helpful, but it's funny because now this is a sidebar. This is a totally funny side note um <laughs> in the book and shows you um even though he's a, is a very smart gentleman uh his exegesis needs work and so <laughs> he says yeah. this so check this out um he says in the bible joseph the one who was sold into slavery joseph is cast out by his brothers and sold into slavery and then rises to become the pharaoh's right hand man on the strength of his own brilliance and insight <laughs> Where did uh, it say that in the Bible? 
Yeah, yeah. I was like, strength and wisdom on his own insight. What about God giving them a vision, man? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, when you deny uh, the supernatural as an option... You just ex- you just cross red you know cross those parts of the text out and you're left with well it was obviously all him yeah but but I think uh, but I not not to you know it's in the book but I I think it was just funny I was just like okay you know this is clearly a smart gentleman um but clearly he doesn't have eyes to see because you know we all know that's why you I you know I heard you laugh like wait a minute what he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. Like how was he able to interpret those dreams, man? Like you know what I mean. So, but anyways, how, anyways, how was, was he able to resist temptation in a scenario that uh, had he not resisted temptation, he would he probably didn't have any bootstraps left. I don't know, man. But anyways, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I can speak about ifs, but yeah, um, but the, but there the, 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 was a lot of ifs in the book. Okay, if this could have been done, but but I'm like, but it was kind of contradicting. Um, in his point saying, okay, well, there's unique situations that bring about this income, this outcome, but maybe we can try to duplicate it. Like how far uh, do we have to go to recreate these opportunities? And and I think that, that that's just um, an endless journey. There, there's two thoughts um, that I, that I, I'm assuming we're getting close to the end here uh, that, that come to mind. One is, you know, again, not to be on too much of a libertarian bent, but, you know, I think about the age example that you gave and, you know, the, the, if you contrast, you know, the government sort of created scenarios with the free market, generally the government options when it comes, like, think about how much does, you know, uh, age with regards to schooling, with regards to sports, all come down to kind of the government creating the programs or government creating the infrastructure and, and the reason I bring that up is the only way a government can create a program for everybody is to try to create a very broad standard. And to some extent, he's, a, he's a demonstrating that it's these broad standards that create the problem. Whereas in the free market concept, you, you start to, you're actually trying to service each customer on a u- unique aspect. Now, obviously you can find examples where that's not true. Um, but what I mean is, you know, the entrepreneurs are generally having more, less standard products and more uh, multiple or, or even just the market itself has multiple variations of similar products so that customers can have their unique Mets need or or unique needs met. I said that backwards. Wow. Um, and, and I just say that as like a bit of, you know, just to, to contrast, hey, why don't we have school starting every six months? Well, it's because we have standardized schooling across the board. Um, you know, if we had a purely free market sort of approach to schooling, would, would, would that have been the way that we do it? I don't know the answer to that, obviously, because we don't really have um, an ability to have competition. But um, again, not to go too far down the libertarian bent the other uh thought i had or, or really i want to reference a quote um, i want to know if you've heard it and 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 i think um, if you've heard it tell me I, i'm wondering if it even came up in the book because it, it might have the quote is um sh- uh, difficult times create strong people strong people create good times good times create weak people 
and weak people create tough times. Good times and, create and weak people? Yeah. Uh. Be- because y- your ability to um, take for granted what you have. Oh, okay. okay. And therefore, you don't work hard. You don't okay. strive because you have, mm-hmm. you know, think about like the rich kids who you're like, you know, how m- it's like, I don't know about you, but like I know in, in where I grew up, the people that were were um, the the classmates that were of the richest families generally didn't work as hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's kind of sort of the the sequence, or um, and and it just resonates to me. Like you gave the example of you know the Jews um, as well as the Asians with regards to working hard, but they were put in a context that they was they had to struggle. And the struggle is almost what created their strengths or their, you know, the strong people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, lastly, you know, at the, the last chapter, he talks about his the outliers in his life and how his his he talks about his descendants being um, Jamaican. And uh, so Malcolm Gladwell is a, is a light skinned gentleman, um, but he talks about how his uh great great grandfather was a white slave owner and um purchased his wife and his descendants were therefore um biracial and because majority of the people in his family had lighter skin um they there were advantages that were granted to him um in in his side of the family and so I thought that was very uh, powerful. It was a really good, um, it was a really good um, illustration of how, um, at that time, from or the impact of um, white men coming to Jamaica, not to settle or to um, necessarily to um, create infrastructure, but to live. And so they would, you know, take for themselves black women. Um, as their mistress and have children and and so you saw the impact of that um, shadism as some blacks would call it and how you know light-skinned people got better treatment better education than than dark-skinned people and he was pointing to him being a beneficiary of that and so he concludes with the thought and says this and he says These were history's gifts to my family. And if the resources of that grocer, the fruits of those riots, the possibilities of that culture, and the privileges of that skin tone had been extended to others, how many more would now live a life of fulfillment in a beautiful house high on a hill? Hmm. Right? Um, And so, yes, sorry, go ahead. I, w- I was gonna say, um, you know, I ha- I have the th- like, I have the thought of um, the economics side of me says okay, but not to discredit kind of what his question is, but to say, are we are we is it disregarding the idea of um, limited resources? 
Well, I, again, I go back to the idea, the way the question was phrased. I don't know if you want to read it again. Um, these were history's gifts to my family. And if the resources of that grocer and the fruits of those riots, the possibilities of that culture and the privilege of that skin tone have been extended to others, how many more would now live a life of fulfillment in a beautiful house high on a hill? The way he phrased the question would, was, we would just have more opportunities. And I'm saying, based on an economics limited resource perspective, we wouldn't have had more opportunities. We would have different people getting access to the same opportunities. And my response to Malcolm Gladwell would be, uh, yes, that's nice, but everybody can't be light-skinned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, for, for the listener... Or for the you know someone who's looking at this book, who who would you recommend the book to, uh, or would you just recommend the book to everyone? And and what would you say would kind of be your expectation that they would learn or take away from it? To summarize, I think is people who are ambitious, people who want more out of life, and want to study those who've done it well. It's definitely helped me not to envy those people mm. who have made it far in life and we've been very successful so i don't envy them in the sense that before i used to assume oh they had it easy to get to where they were at but um you know everybody who made it far in life had to work hard and god had to also open doors for them at the same time Mm -hmm. Uh, but i would definitely recommend this book uh to people they should get it check it out it definitely taught me that there's more to analysis and more to um breaking down a person's success than just um, having a mamba mentality (laughs) or, um, you know, just having a natural gift. Like it takes more than privilege to make it. It's a factor of many things. Uh, As a Christian, I would say that, well, you know, from a Christian, like everybody wants to be successful, right? Or I should say everybody wants to be really successful. But what does that even look like? So for the Christian, it's finding contentment in Christ. Because like Job, you can have everything and then lose it in the blink of an eye. Don't believe the hype. Read the type. This is Type Beast. Type Beast.